To the new and improved Power Hour. <clears throat> Excuse me. We got a theme song. You know, it got me all choked up. You know, we got you know, uh, just just shout us out to producer John. You know, for continuing us to hold us down. But welcome to the latest edition of the Power Hour. I am your uh, co-host Kahari Mosley here uh, with uh, my illustrious co-host Miracle Jones, and um, you know we have another. Uh, incredible show tonight before we get into that we will talk about some of the latest news in our heart our hot takes but we are gonna uh, you know talk about a community-based responses to maternal mortality um and health inequality uh but uh you know so much uh going on i definitely wanted to start off uh with some interesting news that uh that governor wolf um is going to um you know uh you know, pass an order or take some steps to ensure uh, that teachers move up to the group 1A um, in, in the vaccination um, um, list. So we are going to see how that works out. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, the responses from Pittsburgh Public Schools, from the Pittsburgh Federation of Teachers, um, and the other stakeholders around the table. Um, obviously, many parents throughout the Pittsburgh area, um, you know, continue to be extremely concerned, um, you know, with the speed at which uh, the reopening, you know, is, is happening. So it's going to be interesting to see. And it hasn't been made public, but an email was shared by State Representative O'Neill from Washington County, who was a member of the bipartisan COVID-19 uh, task force. And um, and he shared that news with some local media. Um, so uh, we are waiting for the official announcement from the governor, you know, on that. But it looks like teachers, uh, which it was against um, some earlier uh, guidance and some earlier thinking from the governor, because there was a number of stakeholders that did reach out to the governor about a month ago asking for teachers to be put into Group One A, and um, and the governor. Um, did not agree with that at the time. So it appears that uh, the thinking is changing, um, you know, in, in the governor's mansion. Um, and obviously this, you know, more than um, any, you know, other areas and school districts of the state, you know, this more than anywhere else affects the Philadelphia school district and the Pittsburgh school district. So it's a very interesting move. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. That was some late breaking news this afternoon. Um, yeah, it is some late breaking news and it comes after uh, President Biden said that he was going to help make the vaccine more available to folks. And of course, the recent controversy that uh, we found the Pittsburgh school superintendent um, ensnared it when he um, traveled out of state. Um, but the vaccine rollout continues to be uh, a source of disagreement 
among a lot of folks because in Pennsylvania, you know, people who smoke were um, eligible to get the vaccine. Um, and there are a lot of other first responders who are not included in the 1A designation. So there has been a, a lot of back and forth going on about who can get the vaccine and when. But also behind this is this need to reopen schools. A lot of schools are actually supposed to start reopening um, this week and next. And so it's going to be very uh, time, timely this 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 uh, announcement, but also to see what the rollout is going to be because, of course, you know the Johnson and Johnson vaccine um, was released this week, so it's going to be um, interesting to see what vaccines are going to be available, how teachers are going to be vaccinated, and what the supply is going to look like because the Johnson and Johnson is the uh, one dose vaccine, but the Pfizer and the Moderna, which are the most uh, popular and what's considered to be the most reliable are the two shots. And so that's going to take a couple of weeks for those to go through. So um, depending on what's available to teachers is going to be what the next step is going to be with this uh, right. new announcement. And, and, and that's a great segue back uh, to the uh, original topic that, that we were talking about as far as teachers getting vaccinated, because part of the announcement is, I believe, nine to a thousand of Johnson and Johnson vaccine um, is, is going to be part of this announcement that's going to be coming to the state of Pennsylvania. Now, I don't know if that's going to be earmarked for educators or, you know, obviously it's going to be for the 1A group, but um, it appears that uh, the state is going to acquire uh, 90 some thousand doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And, and as Miracle said, for those who may not be you know, aware um, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's efficacy is about 66%, uh, as compared to the 90 some odd percent for the Pfizer and Moderna. But again, it is a, a, a one dose, um, vaccination. Um, and it also beyond the fact that it's one dose, um, it also does not need the cold chain storage. So it doesn't need to be in sub freezing temperatures. Uh, throughout the whole process. And then once it gets kind of opened out of the package, it doesn't have that short five day shelf life that the, uh, that the more volatile um, Pfizer and Moderna uh, uh, doses have. And when I say just say volatile means that they just don't stay together long. Once they're at room temperature, they begin to break down. So as soon as they're open within a five day period, if I'm not mistaken, they have to be taken where the Johnson and Johnson one can sit like most vaccines can sit on a shelf for an extended period of time. So they're going to be earmarking those for rural communities or native American communities, areas where is not going to be sure you'll be able to uh, schedule that booster shop or be, or be able to, you know, a lot of the places uh, in rural America or where our indigenous brothers and sisters are, you know, there's not a necessarily a central hub where you could say, okay, 28 days from now, you know, this is where you're going to be, you know? So a lot of those places are going to be getting earmarked for the Johnson and Johnson and just places where that cold chain storage. And then there's certain places that, you know, they may not even have, the sub-zero freezers anywhere they don't just have physically have there. There's only so many of those that they've been able to manufacture since six months ago, they realized that they needed them. So um, as much yeah. as some people don't like the Johnson and Johnson, you know, actually Amy Shadala, who was on the show several weeks ago was on MSNBC this afternoon talking about, you know, how important as far as, 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 as the goal to herd immunity 
is is the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, the role that that's going to play, because also it's one shot, you know, um, not two shots for every one person. Yeah. And so um, in the very beginning, when the vaccines were rolling out, a lot of people who were not in the 1A classification actually got the vaccine because they were the the vials were going to go bad because they had been thawed out. And so that also created an issue where you had people who got the first shot but technically weren't eligible for it, um, but still had to get the um, second shot. So this hopefully, even though the efficacy is not as strong as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, will still allow for folks to get vaccinated, who, people who want to get vaccinated, um, I should say, to have the opportunity to get the vaccine in a more timely fashion. Um uh, there's been the data has skewed a little bit, but it's even less than 10% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated. So when we're talking about all of these vials um, and these different vaccines, uh, it still up impacts the majority of the country. And when you talk about the indigenous populations who have been ravaged by COVID-19 and who've had like a tenth of the federal support, um, it's very important that those areas are able to have a vaccine that's more stable um, and that can travel to help more people. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So is there uh, any other uh, uh, news bits that you want to share before we get? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, I will say staying on COVID. Um, a lot of stuff is happening. You know, today the Pennsylvania GOP announced that they are launching an investigation um, into the how the Pennsylvania administration handled the COVID nineteen crisis, specifically um, how it engaged elder living facilities and senior citizen homes, because outside of prisons, that is the largest uh, swath of population who's been impacted uh, by the COVID-19 um, virus. And so that's something that has also um, been going on now. I do apologize for um, my niece and nephew. Um, and other than that, there's a lot of other things that are happening when it comes to uh, COVID-19. Absolutely. Absolutely. And before uh, we get into our panel, I just wanted to mention before we get into our last news item, just mention that our, our guests for tonight are Demia Horsley from Healthy Start Pittsburgh and Ngozi Walker Tibbs from the Pittsburgh Black Breastfeeding Circle. And again, our topic for tonight will be community based uh, responses to maternal mortality and health inequality. And I'm um, just to, uh, you know, run through um Last couple uh, news items that, you know, again, we have a uh, very robust uh, marriage race um, un underway here in the city of Pittsburgh. And, and many uh, local uh, officials have been making endorsements and, and many uh, folks have been um, following uh, those many endorsements. We're not going to get into all of those um, tonight, uh, but, you know, we definitely you know, encourage everyone to pay attention to not only uh, the mayor's race, uh, but the nine judicial seats, uh, the many uh, district justice races out there um, as well um, in the city of Pittsburgh and Allegheny County, the appellate uh, court races, uh, Superior Court, Commonwealth Court, uh, Supreme Court. Um, and, and, and just make sure that, you know, you're following what's going on. We're going to have a ton of information. Um, actually, next week, uh, our March 8th episode is going to focus, you know, on the election. It's going to kind of be part two of our part one that we did in January with Ryan Dito and, and Chris Potter. 
just given the previous this kind of, that was like pregame, you know, and this is kind of after the first quarter, you know, we're going to, we're going to check the scoreboard, you know, you know, and see where we're at. And um, so any, any, any last things you want to say about the primary before we bring on our first guest? You know, at the very beginning of last year, when we told people, like, if we don't like something, run. I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't know people were taking it as seriously. Um, but every race, um, uh, the school board, the sheriff, the mayor, um, count, uh, council, borough councils, all, all of these races are competitive um, all throughout uh, Allegheny County, even to the Superior Court. Uh, position. So this is going to be, I predict, a more engaging election season than the presidential election in Pennsylvania. We have so much going on. And, you know, and today, you know, my home state of Georgia, they just passed um, HB 531, which restricts um, voting and it, it's going to stop this wave of voter suppression here in Pennsylvania. They're also looking at um, uh, changing the way that um early voting is going to happen and occur. And so outside of just voting, we also going to have to be mindful of what these changes are going to be. And people are going to have to be able uh, to really set aside election day because it's looking like we're not going to have early voting. We're not going to have these early voting sites. So people are really going to have to make sure as they're able to come out and vote on May 18th that we're going to hope that those COVID numbers are not spiking around that time. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. We talked about this a few weeks ago with uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, you know, about, you know, uh, you know, starting with, you know, the big lie, you know, about, uh, you know, false allegations of, you know, improprieties, you know, during the election, you know, and how that false narrative is now being used in 2021 to pass legislation to suppress voters. I know, um, in the state of Iowa, they just passed um, legislation that's going to, uh, they rolled back early voting days, uh, made some other restrictions, you know, on voting. Um, and, 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 and the big lie from 2020 is definitely uh, going to be used as a tool to restrict access to voting and create more obstacles uh, for people um, to turn out to vote. So that's definitely something we're going to need to continue to keep an eye on here in the state of Pennsylvania, as well as uh, around the country. Um, so, uh, you know, Miracle, do you want to uh, just provide a little bit of context, you know, about our show tonight, introduce our first guest and why uh, the issue um, of, of maternal mortality and health inequality is so important? Um, yes. So a lot of you may have um, uh, read the article that Jerry Dickinson put out earlier um, this week talking about Pittsburgh as a apartheid city. Um, and in that article, you know, he put some stats out. Some people were not aware of that, you know, black women are three times more likely to die of maternal mortality, um, that we are two times more likely to have children who are underweight or when they're born or uh, fetal deaths um, and a lot of issues. And so a lot of times when people hear these surveys and, and these numbers, it's, it's, it's a negative impact. But what's often forgotten a lot of times is that black women are out here doing the work, saving each other and saving ourselves. And so we wanted to focus on the community response uh, to these maternal, maternal mortality issues uh, to give uh, black women who are pregnant, black people who are 
facing pregnancy right now who are, are scared and afraid of giving birth in this region some opportunities and some resources and some information so they can have the best you know pregnancy and delivery possible and so with that we have um some community advocates um uh guys from the pittsburgh uh Black Breastfeeding Circle and Miss um, Demia uh, from uh, Healthy Start Pittsburgh, who's actually going to be here talking about some of the things that Healthy Start is doing, as well as a new uh, centering pregnancy program that they just launched. Um, so, if you are you have questions, please paste them in the chat on Facebook and YouTube. We will see those questions, and with that, we will um, welcome our guest uh, Zamia to the show from Healthy Start. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Hello. hello. I'm good. How are you guys? Doing fantastic. Doing fantastic. And like I said, I, I know I said community based, but also, honestly, you look at Demi's name, it's very um, educated in this field, you know, a master's in public health, you know, uh, has been doing this work uh, for a long time and it's qualified both, you know, for the professional development education as well as the community engagement experience. And so um, welcome. Demia, how are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about all of our programs that we have for families locally. Yeah, and so can we just start? Um, what is Healthy Start, and what and and how are y'all engaging people who are pregnant at this time? Yes, so Healthy Start has been around for a long time. Um, we're a public health organization. Um, our mission is to improve maternal and child health, much like you just say, um, stated, by um, reducing infant mortality and poor birth outcomes, including maternal mortality in Pittsburgh and Allegheny County. Um, our, we've always had a specific emphasis on um, addressing the disparities in these outcomes. And as we've seen over the last couple of years, there's really been a shift in focus there. We were already we already had our boots on the ground running, focused on addressing disparities and improving those, those outcomes for our black families locally. So that that's what Healthy Start is in a nutshell. Um, we have a variety of different programming to address um, these outcomes across levels. So not just direct service, but, you know, we span from direct service to policy and advocacy and we partner with lots of local um, organizations and businesses, big and small, um, to make sure that we're addressing this the most appropriately. And then um, a lot of times people have questions. So when you're talking about addressing this, are you in the home? Do people have to come down to your um, office? Like, how are you? How do people engage with Healthy Start? Great question. So as I mentioned, we have a multidisciplinary array of programming. Um, so Healthy Start, as its name would suggest, is um, one of the health, the National Healthy Start Demonstration Projects. So that is an in-home program. Um, but so we come to the home to deliver that programming. Um, a mother doesn't have to or a family doesn't have to leave their homes. We come to support them there. Um, but we also have community based programming like our parent cafe where you don't have to be enrolled in any of our programming to participate. We have um, different fatherhood initiatives that engage fathers, whether or not they are a member, a, a part of Healthy Start. So we have a variety of programs. 
Um, we also have our Community Health Advocate Program, which um, is one of our advocacy initiatives that was originally created in partnership with the Allegheny County Health Department, Maternal and Child Health Division. And the focus of that is really to center Black moms as the experts in their community and the health of their community. And so we offer this eight-week training to build their advocacy and health competency so that they can then go back into the community and be advocates and push forward this work. Um, so our work looks really looks different depending upon what program you're referring to. A lot of it does happen in the home. Um, we also have a doula program, which provides support to expectant families. Um, that was launched as a direct result of the COVID pandemic. Um, we have a postpartum doula program that provides support after uh, a family gives birth because we know that those first couple weeks can be really challenging. It's a really big transition. And so we want to make sure that we provide the support necessary so that that transition can um, so that a woman can go through that transition with the support that they need. So we offer a variety of programming, some in the home, some in the community, um, some in partnership with other organizations. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to um, you know, ask a question, you know, about about your uh, training program and your advocacy program. You know, for someone, you know, looking, you know, on the outside, and you know, so much of you know, your focus is health. You know, you know, is public health. You know, why did you feel like it was important um, to bring civic engagement, you know, and, and advocacy, you know, in, into that space? You know, why is it? Why why is civic engagement so important to public health? Yeah, so we strongly believe that there are no solutions that exist outside of the, the people for whom we're creating the solutions for. So nothing about us without us. You can't create solutions without engaging the community. And our, the core of our program has always been community. We're, we are very much a community organization. You take all the letters away. My work has always been in community. So um, that it, it was very important that we and we have long time engaged community um, prior to having the Community Health Advocate Program, a core part of the Healthy Start Program is to have a community advisory network or CAN. So we're always looking for community input and the resolutions that are going to improve outcomes. Um, that's been just a, a longstanding um, part of Healthy Start. Very interesting. So, and, and just as, as a quick follow up, um, what what kind of uh, you know impact and how how long has this advocacy training program that you've been doing been in place and what are like some of the uh, outcomes that you've seen come, you know, from that program by, you know, uh, empowering people to go back into their community with solutions. Yes. So the, um, the community health advocate program launched in 2017 we're now on, I think, our sixth cohort. So when it first launched, it was like much shorter. Um, I was actually a mentor on the first um, cohort and now I'm a co-facilitator. So I've come a, a long way since it first started. Um, but we see individually, we see moms, uh, participants in the Community Health Advocate Program have become CLC. So now they're serving in their communities, providing lactation support. And excuse me, a CLC is a certified lactation counselor. Um, participants have become doula, so providing doula support. Um, participants have um, developed programs in the community. So our Wilkinsburg cohort is now a part of our Best Allegheny Initiative and Best Baby Zone, building some community-based resolutions to infant mortality within Wilkinsburg. So we see various different um, 
different outcomes. And, and the main thing is that it creates sustainability to train community members to deliver this program. Because long after there's a healthy start or, you know, whatever organization, these community members still have these skills. And so they can push forward the health of their communities. Right. And, and so I know that like you said you're in the community, you're engaging. I know a couple of weeks ago, um, the uh, the Pennsylvania um, Health Caucus actually had a listening section talking about like a maternal health. And so, what has the, been the government's response to investing um, specifically in in Black maternal health? Because that's where a lot of the disparities are outside of um, the Indigenous population. Some of the worst disparities. Um, that we're seeing. So what is the government response in this issue? That's a really great question. So I would say local government, we really saw um, this big push to make to name racism as a public health um, as a public health issue. Um, and, and that that's really beneficial because it can really help direct where funding goes. We haven't yet seen the fruits of that yet, but because that's been so recent within the last year or so. But we have seen that locally. Um, on a statewide, um, on a state stage, we see Representative Morgan Cephas, who participated in that session, or I think it was she um, led it. Uh, she's um, introduced some bills to address uh, maternal mortality locally, with specifically or statewide, specifically for Black families. Um, so we have seen, and then within the last couple of years, a maternal mortality review board was created. And we know since Black women really bear the brunt of the numbers of maternal mortality and morbidity, that's primarily going to um, benefit Black families and Black women when we're addressing this maternal mortality crisis. So we've seen a variety of different responses um, to what's going on and specifically that will impact uh, those disparities that we see. Interesting. And, and, and could you, um, you know, uh, you know, talk a little bit, you know, about, um, you know, doulas and, and, you know, and the history of it, you know, I happened to, um, you know, when my, my, when my wife gave birth, you know, we had a doula, you know, there present at both times. And that was really my introduction. Um, well, my two sons were, you know, were born. And then we, you know, began to do more research as we learned more about it as we went through the process, you know, pre-birth. And you learn this this extensive history of, you know, throughout human history, there's been this historic role, you know, of doulas, you know, being women, you know, through this process. And, you know, so you just talk a little bit about the history and how over the last hundred years it's been lost and how maybe over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, we're rediscovering this thing that's been part of human culture for thousands of years. Yeah, you didn't tell the whole history. <laughs> no, but just like you said, throughout history, there's always been a women supporting women throughout birth. And with the medicalization of birth, we really saw an erasure of doulas, and among other things. So it's not just doulas who are erased. Uh, we saw that same thing with midwives, but um, we really saw that erasure. And it's just now being reintroduced. Um, but a doula is someone who supports a um, birthing person by providing educational um, educational uh, comfort measures and advocacy 
um, to make sure that they're having the best possible birthing experience. Um, I'm a doula. Actually, Ngazi Tibbs is a doula. She's um, one of the doulas in the Healthy Start Doula program. She's been a doula for years. I remember when I wanted to be a doula, um, someone was like, oh, you got to connect with Ngazi. So, um, yeah. And to your point, Healthy Start recently launched a doula program. It was as a response to um, COVID and some of the concerns that expectant families were expressing around having to birth in a hospital without their original support team because there was a restriction on how many people you can have in the um, birth room. And so we created a virtual program. We um, wow. we had a couple of funders. We were able to get hotspots and um, iPads, and we were able to loan those out to families so that they can connect with doulas and still have the support that they needed. And this is it was a very novel concept for us, at least. And so we didn't know what impact it would have. But honestly, the, the doulas were able to make a substantial impact even being virtual. So the majority of our births have been virtual, but since um, some of the restrictions have loosened, we've been able to provide in-person support as well. Um, but regardless, the doulas have really been able to provide the support that at least the families felt like they needed in order to achieve their best birth outcomes. It's been absolutely amazing. Wow. And, that, and that's really important because I know um, just speaking, you know, from me and my wife's experience, um, you know, being able to have an advocate, someone, you know, and we went through the McGee uh, midwifery as well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but being able, um, you know, to have, you know, an advocate to, to know what questions to ask, you know, I mean, it's almost like kind of like, you know, you need a lawyer to go to court. So you have like someone like this to go through the, this, this process with you. And, you know, and, and, you know, we were, you know, older, we were in our thirties, we were married. I can only imagine um, you know, with, you know, a younger mother, you know, you know, someone who wasn't in the same situation, who was like older, had resources, how intimidating that process can be, you know, talking to, um, you know, OBGYNs and things like that, you know, potentially even being judged, you know, because we even felt like we were kind of being judged at, at our first, you know, consultation, you know, and you like, you know, wow, we look well, see what, how we got here, you know what I mean? And, you know, obviously, you know how you got there and there's like sometimes like some shame that comes along with that that can add to the stress you know mm -hmm. you know of that environment so being able to have those kind of advocates i think you know is very important particularly for so many young women from our community that sometimes have to go through this journey by themselves you know you know without a partner you know what i mean so um i mean it's, it's, it's just huge it was huge for us you know we have a lot of resources you know at our disposal that you know would make that journey easier. So I can only imagine, you know, how important, you know, um, the service and the supports that you provide to the community. Yeah. Or, um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I watched the business of being born like, <laughs> like years ago. I was like <laughs> radicalized. And I was like, we need more water, water births and natural births. And so I really appreciate like all the work that like you're doing specifically in this region. And I was wondering if you could spend the next couple of minutes just talking about what the centering pregnancy group is and like how people can get involved. Yes. So um, the Centering Pregnancy Group is a model of group prenatal care. So it's just, it's just that it is your group, it's your prenatal care. But instead of it happening in a clinic um, similar to like the doula experience, one on one with your doctor, you don't know what to ask. Um, you don't get a lot of time. It happens in a group setting. 
And so the way it typically occurs is that you come in, um, it's a very hands-on experience. So you take your own blood pressure, your own weight, you measure your own fundal height. So the, the um, weight, the length of your belly that helps you to measure the how long the baby is or how big the baby is and how the baby's growing. You do that with your doctor's guidance. Um, and then you get a few minutes alone with the doctor um, for, you know, in a semi-private space. And then after that, you rejoin the group and you have a guided, facilitated discussion around what you might be experiencing within a group of other expecting families who are due around the same time as you. And so you have more time to ask those questions, to connect with your provider. Um, and it really lowers those um, that tension that sometimes you experience when you're in that that room one on one. Um, your doctor is coming in, they're in a rush, they're asking questions, they're ready to get out. Um, and it, it makes it more hands-on. There's fun activities, there's snacks. Um, and again, you're really taking a hands-on approach to your own healthcare. So that's what Centering is. We just recently launched in partnership with Primary Care Health Services. So a staple in most of our communities, um, best known for Ama Ellery. Uh, they are the clinical aspect. They're providing the clinical care um, with their physician, um, Dr. Amanda Casagrande, and their nurse practitioner, um, Denise Baker, and then myself as the health educator. So the three of us will be delivering the model of care. Um, due to COVID, the care has to be split up. So what will actually happen is the um, the patients will get 15 minutes with Amanda on Wednesday and then on Friday is the group session, but they're both your prenatal care. It's not like the group is extra. The group is part of your prenatal care. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited about centering. It's been a long time coming. Um, I just actually got like all of them. We're putting together these nice goodie bags for everybody who enrolls. And so I'm really excited to like get the families enrolled and get them their goodie bags. It's going to be a great experience. And how many, like, um, how many more slots are open? Do you need, do you still need families? Yeah, right now we have eight. Um, we can probably squeeze in nine more slots, but we have eight slots open for sure. And somebody said, how many visits are there in the um, censoring families? That's a great question. It follows the normal schedule of prenatal care. These are your prenatal visits. So it's the 10 visits that occur within your second and third trimester. So you'll start off once a month and then you'll go down to biweekly until 36 weeks and then it'll be once a week. It's your normal schedule of primary care, I mean, of um, prenatal care. There's no difference. So the same frequency that you would see your physician if you were going to McGee is the same frequency that you would attend these visits. And the cool thing about it is Dr. Amanda Casagrande, she is a part of UPMC. Um, so you would be with her physicians. Um, you would deliver with the physicians within her group. Um, and honestly, so something about Amanda Casagrande is that her um, her reputation really preceded her. I heard about her prior to being able to work with her. And so I was that much more excited to work with her. Um, I just had already heard about like the great care that she provides. She has a really great rep rep um, reputation for the support that she provides to her patients. So that puts me at ease working with her and, you know, we're referring our healthy or I'm partnering with her with our Healthy Start participants. And I feel confident they're, that they're in good hands. Another great thing about the program is that you're seeing the three of us your entire pregnancy. 
So if you have a question, you contact um, Dr. Casa Grande and Denise Baker. If you have just a general um, a general question, you can ask me. I'm a, a doula and a certified um, a, a Lamar certified childbirth educator. But if you have something specific to your own health, we also have a man, um, Dr. Casa Grande and Denise Baker. So we're the people who you see your entire pregnancy. You're not seeing a different doctor every time um, you get us every time. And so you get to build those relationships. That's pretty cool. Um, so as we're wrapping up, is there any last comments you would like to share with the audience? Yes, I'll say if you are due in August or September, definitely reach out to us and get enrolled in centering prenatal care. It's different from your typical prenatal care, but different is good. Um, across the country, centering has shown great birth outcomes. Also, if you're expecting any time, you can contact us to enroll in our doula program if you want support at your birth. Um, it is at no cost to you. It has been funded. Um, so, you know, reach out to us so that we can enroll and last, I would really be remiss if I did not mention that we do have our Healthy Start Center for Urban Breastfeeding, where we provide Black moms um, breastfeeding support. We have breastfeeding education classes that you can take while you're pregnant. And then um, we provide 24-7 uh, on-call breastfeeding support. We primarily focus on the first two weeks postpartum, but we provide support up until the first year. So if for all those moms who plan to breastfeed, um, reach out to the Healthy Start Center for Urban Breastfeeding. We work with Ngazi, who's about to come on, um, on a number of different projects. So um, the, Ngazi got the breastfeeding circle. and We back got the 24-hour support. So reach out to Healthy Start. We got all of your needs covered. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, Demia Horsley from um, Healthy Start Pittsburgh, uh, you know, giving us a ton of uh, incredible information about uh, the intersection of, uh, of prenatal care, uh, you know, of uh, the, the, the rebirth of, of, of doulas in, in this country and, and so many important things that any woman in Allegheny County that is due in August, September, or if you're due at any point this year, please, you know, contact um, that organization, Healthy Start. And, um, and, and, and get enrolled, get involved. And um, it will definitely um, be the best, you know, for the health of the child as well as for the health of the mother, which is uh, just as, as important. And, and so much of, you know, what, you know, comprises the role of what doulas do and, and the history of doulas. Um, so, so now we're uh, very, very, very excited um, to introduce our next guest, uh, Ngazi Walker-Tibbs from the Pittsburgh Black Breastfeeding Circle. Welcome, and we uh, also have uh, Ryan as well. Hey, how's everybody doing? Good, good. How you doing, man? Good, thank you. Sorry, I'm super late tonight. Uh, long, long drive, but glad to be here now. Awesome. Yeah, you popped up. I was like, that's. I don't think that's Ngazi Walker. <laughs> <laughs> the black oh. circle. <laughs> well, welcome, so you welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Can you can you hear me? Okay. Yes. I'm yes. having I'm having a little bit of difficulty. It's going in and out. So I switched. I went from my iPad to my phone. So I hope that you can hear me. Okay. Hey, we so, can hear you. Okay. 
Yeah. Great. Um, so to get right to it, um, you know, to be able to singing your praises, um, what is the Pittsburgh uh, Black Breastfeeding Circle? Yeah, so the Pittsburgh Black Breastfeeding Circle started in 2016. I'm sorry, 2014. We really, really got cooking in 2016. But we are um, a grassroots organization that began to address the unique breastfeeding needs of women and birthing people of African descent. So our goal is to get as many Black mamas, Black breastfeeding people with the babies at their breast because we know that there are short and long-term health benefits for both mothers and babies if the babies are at the breast. And you know, when we had our very first meeting in 2014, we had a sister come up to us and say that she was told that she couldn't get help with breastfeeding because her nipples were too dark. I was livid when I heard that. And I said, wow, I don't know who this person was, but they obviously did not have very good training. So um, that was disappointing. And I said, we have to, we have to do something about this. We need to be here in the midst of our, of our sisters. And when our organization started, I had just finished my MPH, actually. I was exhausted. I had spent three years in school. Um, I was also a mother of five. I was working two jobs, but I felt like... You know, I spent some time in prayer and meditation. I felt like we needed to grow an organization that addressed the breastfeeding needs of Black families. And we started from scratch. We had nothing. We went and asked for donations. We started meeting at our local libraries. Our very first official meeting was in October of 2014 at the East Liberty Library. And, you know, I still look at the pictures. We're, we're grateful for Savims because they donated food. They said, you got to feed the mamas and the babies. And then a couple of years later, we got our first grant so that we could meet in person and we provide healthy foods for families and a lot of education and support. Just how do you breastfeed and go back to work? How do you breastfeed a toddler? How do you breastfeed twins? You know, we talked about that. And the reason why breastfeeding or human milk feeding is so significant is because we know that babies who are breastfed have a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, ear infections, certain types of childhood cancers, and children who are breastfed have lower rates of obesity. That's significant, especially in our community. But what are the health benefits for the mothers, for the folks that are breastfeeding? Mothers and people who breastfeed have lower rates of premenopausal breast cancer. They have lower risk of osteoporosis later in life. They also, this is really significant, have lower risk of heart disease. All, all sorts of chronic health issues that are plaguing our community that breastfeeding can help reduce the risk. So we wanted our sisters to know that. What does that mean when the baby is at your breast, that you are changing the health status of your family for generations. That's how significant, you know, human milk feeding is. So due to the pandemic, unfortunately, we're not meeting in person, but we are meeting every week. We do Facebook lives every week where folks can ask questions. We are partnering with the Healthy Start Center for Urban Breastfeeding. We are together on a grant with the health department through the CDC. We're able to provide food bucks for families so they are able to get fresh fruits and vegetables from our green grocers and at the Eastern Food Co-op. So, you know, partnering with community groups makes a huge difference. So we're happy to 
be with our sister Dania, with the CEO of Healthy Start, Jada Sherelle, um, with Gabby Mendez. You know, we are working with folks together to create a breastfeeding black village in the city of Pittsburgh. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a, um, a lot of powerful uh, information. You know, if you could just talk a little bit more about like any potential scientific evidence of, of why, uh, you know, is it from a nutritional standpoint, from a chemical standpoint, why, you know, the, the process of breastfeeding, you know, is, is so mutually beneficial, um, you know, for the provider and the child? Yes. And, you know, I also want to say we're not trying to demonize formula. We're not saying formula is bad or evil, but we do know that human milk, that breast milk is the optimal way to feed our babies. This is not new to us. We've been doing this since the beginning of time. And the evidence is robust about those short and long-term health benefits that I mentioned about reducing risk of chronic and, and acute you know, diseases, which are plaguing our community. So we should be singing the praises of human milk feeding, right? When we're, when we're talking about how to reduce our healthcare costs. Um, the obesity rates amongst children is on the rise. Breast, breast cancer rates amongst black women are on the rise. And we know that breastfeeding can reduce the risk of uh, premenopausal breast cancer. So we sh while we're looking at diet, of course, we also should be looking at human milk feeding Here's something else that's pretty significant as we're talking about this pandemic, right? I get all excited when I talk about this. There have been no documented cases of COVID-19 being passed to infants through their mother's breast milk, not one. That is significant because many families are asking questions like if I'm COVID positive, can I still breastfeed? And the answer is absolutely, you should continue to breastfeed. Yeah, so the evidence is from the World Health Organization, the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, the American um, Breastfeeding Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. All of this information is available to us. We especially need to get it into Black families. We need to hear this. Why are our breastfeeding rates lower? Historically, of course, we know because we're from the mother continent, we've been doing this, right? We've been breastfeeding, but over the years, we've lost that. Like Demia, my sister Demia talked about it, right? With the medicalization of birth, doulas not being allowed in the room, um, midwives not being allowed. So we lost some of those old ways. So we need to practice that Sankofa principle, which means to go back and fetch it. We need to go back to learning from our elders and our learned women in our communities to teach the younger women the old ways, the healthy ways to keep our families strong. Women primarily are the gatekeepers of health in their families. If you've got a healthy mother and a healthy baby, she will then make sure that partner is healthy. Then you got a healthy family. Healthy families make up healthy communities and healthy communities make for a healthy society. So we're not saying that our male partners aren't important. Of course not. We're saying start with that mother and baby. Make sure that they're healthy. She'll make sure that partner is healthy. We want that whole family to be healthy. So when we were meeting in person, we had the dads, we had the grandfathers coming, you know, grandmothers coming to the meetings, talking about how to support that breastfeeding family. 
Yeah, um, thank you so much, especially for providing, you know, that information um, as it pertains to COVID, because I, I can imagine that's, you know, a really common concern that a lot of people have um, yes. as far as, you know, transmission that way. Um, and so I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, I saw a study the other day um, that I think was from the Allegheny County Health Department from a few years ago, um, that there's like some pretty substantial, at least at the time, I think the, the survey data ran through like 2015, um, but there was you know, some pretty substantial um, disparities along, uh, you know, racial lines as far as the, the percentage of um, either new mothers who are breastfeeding or, you know, expected mothers who, who plan to be breastfeeding. Um, and so I was just wondering, you know, like what's what sort of specific um, strategies or initiatives um, that y'all have had to, you know, work to close that gap. Um, and yes, yeah, also just because that data is, you know, a few years old, if there's if there's been any changes in that area as a result. Yes, thank you. That's a great question. And most data uh, comes out about every two years. So the data that's coming out now would be from 2019, right? So 2021 data won't typically come out until 2023. So I would say it's pretty current, probably the information that you've read. Here's what we know. We have lost a lot of that connection with our families. When, when women were breastfeeding years ago, they had their mother with them or they would have their aunties, they would have their sisters, all women that had breastfed. Well, the year I was born, 1971, around 1971, 73, the breastfeeding rates were very low amongst all women in the United States, about 20, 25%. Here's the reason why, because our mothers and our grandmothers weren't breastfeeding and they weren't passing down that information. We also didn't have the protection, work protection from employers. So if a mother decides she's going to breastfeed her child, she needs to have established breaks where she can do that privately, right? Where she's not exposed to everybody else, you know, with her breast bare, she needs to be in a private environment. So now we have the Affordable Care Act as of 2010. And I know certain people have been trying to get rid of it since it started. But as of today, we're still working with the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act provides protection for breastfeeding families. That's important for mothers who are breastfeeding for the first time. Maybe they're the first breastfeeder in their family. The Affordable Care Act says that employers that have 50 or more employees have to provide a private place for a breastfeeding person to provide milk to her child. So that could be using a breast pump, that could be using a hand pump in an area that is private, not a bathroom. We don't eat in a bathroom, she shouldn't have to pump in a bathroom. So when you have, you know, government protections, breastfeeding rates go up. When you have community support, where you go to community events and there's private places for people to breastfeed or to pump milk for their babies, you know, breastfeeding rates go up. When you have organizations like WIC that provide extra food for families that are breastfeeding because you are burning a certain amount of calories when you're breastfeeding your child. So WIC provides extra food for those breastfeeding mothers. We see that the biggest increases in breastfeeding rates in the United States have occurred amongst women who are on WIC. That's significant information for us to know. And then when you have family support, families that are saying, yes, I wanna make sure that you're getting the food and the rest that you need so that you can breastfeed your baby. That's when the breastfeeding rates go up. So in 2011, the Surgeon General at that time, Dr. Regina Benjamin, 
she came out with the um, Surgeon General's call to action to support breastfeeding. And what that did, first of all, as a black woman, that definitely, I, I think, had a positive impact on the black community. But hearing her talk about how the healthcare system, employers, um, community, um, how we can all come together to support breastfeeding because this is a public health issue, not just a feeding choice, but a public health issue. Families that breastfeed short and long-term, uh, they experience those short and long-term benefits. So that benefits the whole community. So the numbers that we're often looking at at the, uh, at the health department, we're seeing uh, families and breastfeeding folks that are not getting that round support, right? That holistic support from family and community, employer and society. Um, I do have a question to follow up with what Ryan was saying. Um, I know at the beginning yeah. of the, the pandemic, a lot of there was uh, a lot of barriers to being in the hospital with people who were going yeah. through labor and delivery. Um, as a doula, as someone, you know, we know a lot of there's a lot of like latching concerns that happen. Are y'all now back in the hospitals or do people need to schedule appointments with you um, after birth? Yes, yeah, so the wonderful part about um, the doula organization that, that Demi and I are with, with Healthy Start, is many of those doulas are also certified lactation counselors, or they've had training with me as well. They've gotten at least 30 hours of hands-on lactation training. So we're able to mesh that doula and lactation provider hat so that the families can get support. Then they're also getting support, you know, virtually through the Black Breastfeeding Circle and 24-7 with the Healthy Start Center for Urban Breastfeeding. I also have a private practice separate from the work that I do with the Black Breastfeeding Circle, and I do see families in person. Of course, you know, masked up and everything. I have been uh, completely vaccinated. I received both of my vaccines. I let families know that. But I also provide that in-person support because I'm considered to be an essential worker. I see brand new babies uh, and, and brand new parents. And so I was able to qualify to receive the vaccine. I'm very happy to say that. Because if a family is having breastfeeding concerns, they need to get on-time support. Not next week, but on-time. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Miracle. I'll say like, um, I know there's like a lot of misinformation out there. So like for me, I personally didn't know that babies like under a year old were not supposed to be fed water um, just because, you know, it, that's actually de deadly for children. Are there any other um, uh, misconceptions or myths out there that you would like to um, talk about in our last few many minutes? Sure, sure. There is a myth that is around that breastfeeding hurts for like the first couple of weeks. Your nipples just get used to it and you get better at it. That's actually not true. Nipple pain is common, but not necessarily normal. If someone's having nipple pain, we want them to get support right away. And I'm sorry, I don't have my little breast model with me. It's actually down the hall. Um, I have this little cloth breast that I demonstrate um, proper latching with families. Um, but when the baby latches on to the breast, we want them to be almost off center. So they're coming under and onto the breast where their chin is coming into the breast first. When they do that, something really amazing happens. The tongue comes underneath the nipple 
and does this little wave-like motion, like an undulation, and it massages the breast. And then that stretches the nipple in the baby's mouth, and then the signal goes to the brain to release milk for the baby, and the baby receives drops of milk first and then sprays. So it's a common mis misconception that breastfeeding should hurt. If breastfeeding hurts, please get some help. That means something is not quite right. The baby may not be latched properly. There's also a misconception that you can't breastfeed a baby with teeth. Here's the good news. A baby cannot suck and bite at the same time. It is physiologically impossible. So if a baby is biting at the breast, that's because they're trying to be mean, they're probably teething and mom's breast is soft and they bite down. But it often occurs at the beginning of a feeding or at the end. So I like to share with families that the baby is biting. What I want you to do is keep a finger nearby, gently take the baby off, tell them, don't bite nummies or whatever name you use for the breast. And babies learn very quickly because they want to eat, right? Breast milk is warm and sweet. Babies want to eat. So those are some things that I talk with families about. If your baby gets teeth, we're going to work on teaching your baby to be gentle and not to bite. Many women are concerned that if they breastfeed, it's going to make their breast sag. That's actually a myth. So women who have never nursed a baby, some of them have breasts that are heavier, that sag a little bit, that's more hereditary, but pregnancy can actually change the shape of the breast, not necessarily breastfeeding. Some people believe that if you are breastfeeding, you won't get pregnant. That's also not true. Um, it is true that when you are exclusively breastfeeding, meaning the baby's not receiving any extra food like um formula or their baby's not on solid food yet, um, if your baby is at the breast at least every three hours and not receiving any pacifiers, not receiving any bottles, your chances of pregnancy are pretty low in the first several weeks. However, I just actually counseled someone about this today. It is important if you are sexually active again after the baby is born, you should be using protection. You should not use breastfeeding as a means of birth control. So those are a few you know, of the major myths that, that I have heard um, over the years. I'm a mother of five. I breastfed five babies. And these myths have been around. My son's almost 28 years old. These myths have been around since he was born and even before. So it's important that mothers know that you can breastfeed your baby with teeth. You can breastfeed and work. You can breastfeed and wear a push-up bra, still have perky breasts, like whatever you need to do. Uh, and, and breastfeeding is a pleasant experience for mom and baby. If you're having nipple pain, please get some help because that means that something's not quite right. And also breastfed babies can grow and be strong. There's this myth uh, that people believe that the breastfed baby is scrawny or they don't gain weight as well. That's actually not true. I had some robust, juicy babies here. Uh, and they were just, you know, they were just on on breast milk. And you can breastfeed into the toddler years. You can breastfeed your child to age one. You can breastfeed your child age two. The Quran talks about breastfeeding up to age two. And the average weaning age around the world is actually three and a half to four. So in the breastfeeding group, we've had moms that are breastfeeding their four-year-old. It's not weird. It might look a little different, but it's not weird at that age. The baby might just come to the breast once or twice a day and they go on and do what they need to do. Yeah.
I just had a, a, a quick question. You know, one of the things that, you know, we do often, you know, on this show is, you know, discuss, you know, issues that many people on the surface may not see uh, a connection to, to the public process and civic engagement. And could you talk a little bit about like, you know, from a public policy standpoint, you know, um, you know, is there, uh, you know, any particular policies that either stand in the way, you know, of mm-hmm. growing breastfeeding or any, or any policies that could be put in place that could further encourage, um, you know, this practice? Good question. Um, I would say that, you know, we have protection in the state of Pennsylvania. Actually, we should have it in all 50 states. Um, so this is just within the last few years that a, a breastfeeding person can breastfeed covered or uncovered in any public place in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and it is not considered to be illegal. It recently changed in states like Georgia where they actually had to change the laws because it was considered to be public indecency for a woman to have her breasts bare to feed her baby, which is absolutely ridiculous. But now we have that protection, right, amongst all of our 50 states, but I particularly wanted to bring up about the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and that law has been on the book since 1997. It's important that employers understand that if you support your breastfeeding employee, it's a win-win situation. If the person who is breastfeeding has over full breasts, they're not going to be as productive, right, because they're going to be distracted. We need more employers to to protect breastfeeding families, to provide places for them to breastfeed that's private. That's an example of where employers can, can come into play. We need to make sure that our hospital systems are protecting breastfeeding families, providing evidence-based, informed, culturally humble breastfeeding support to families in our hospitals and in our birthing centers. We need trainings, making sure that people understand how to give proper information. We need to make sure that families that are, are, are breastfeeding are not discriminated against anywhere that they go. We need more laws on the books that say that a person can breastfeed their child anywhere they want, not be harassed, not be discriminated against. That's what we need. There have been some stories, even in Pittsburgh the last couple of years, where people were asked to leave an establishment like a restaurant because they were breastfeeding. Inappropriate. It's a breast. Calm down. We, we see more nipples on television. Like We really need to calm down. And if somebody wants to breastfeed uncovered, I think they should have the right to do that. I personally was comfortable breastfeeding covered and uncovered. And I dared somebody to harass me. My husband felt the same. We need all of those laws on the book. We need to make sure that employers and other places know those laws and are are protecting families. That A woman can breastfeed without harassment anywhere she wishes. And then, did that answer um, your question? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, also, just like wrapping up, because I know my friends Kat and India are g- g- undergoing training right now to be doulas. For people who are interested yeah. in, in this practice, how can they get trained in Pennsylvania? What are the rules and regulations? Um, and how can they contact you for more information or to be a lactation yes. specialist? Yes, and and so. There's this wonderful overlap, of course, with with Healthy Start um, Center for Urban Breastfeeding and the Black Breastfeeding Circle. Um, I would say you can contact either me directly uh, or you can contact Healthy Start Center for Urban Breastfeeding because 
often there is money available for people that want to receive the training that are a part of both of our organizations, right? That they are in the mix, that they want to learn more. There are different doula organizations that are available for people to receive their training too. Almost everything is virtual right now. And that actually makes it easier in some ways because many of the trainings are out of the city or out of the state. So now people are able to have virtual trainings. So um, a couple of organizations that I'm, I'm thinking of right now, um, there's the Black, the Black Doulas Association. So these are people that you can Google. Um, there's also Dona International, D-O-N-A International. You can also contact Demia directly at, at Healthy Start. She can give you some more information about our established doula program and how to make a difference in the community. The word doula comes from the Greek word that means mother's servant or mother's helper. And if you've ever looked at pictures from hundreds and thousands of years ago, as Demia mentioned, you will often see the birthing person or the birthing mother, and she will be surrounded by two women, one on either side of her, as well as the midwife. And often you might see other women in the room as well. Women have been supporting women since the beginning of time. We just got all new and fancy with it, but we've been doing this. And those women also breastfed their babies, many of them. And so they could provide that breastfeeding support. As soon as that baby comes out, they're right there helping that new mom and get that baby on, you know, onto the breast. And I also think it's about being comfortable with our own bodies, especially as black women. I think our bodies have been so over-sexualized that when it comes to something as natural as breastfeeding, we are uncomfortable and we, and we feel shy about that. But in the black breastfeeding circle, we're like sisters, be free, be comfortable with who you are. We celebrate who you are as black women and your bodies are beautiful. And our babies pick up on that energy, right? In this pandemic, all of us are, are going through something, right? We're struggling a bit, just we're not able to connect as much as we used to. But in our circle, even virtually, we're reminding our sisters that they're beautiful, that they're loved, that they're appreciated, and that we want to love on them so they can love on their babies. That's right. Any question, Miracle? <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Um, question are, when are the circles that you, um, do you have a schedule? And then again, how can people join uh, the circles? Yes, our, our website is pghblackbreastfeeding.org. And they are able to go to our website and it'll show them when our meetups are. We're meeting up weekly. In order to be in the virtual meetings, you have to be a member of our Facebook group. So it's only for uh, women who identify as people of African descent. They are able to join our Facebook group, which is a close and it's a private group, right? Because, you know, people show pictures of their breasts. So we want to make sure people feel comfortable. Um, and then we are going to start opening up the circle a bit more where, um, in our virtual space where partners can, you know, come sit next to their, their folks and, and ask questions as well. So you can check out our website. Um, my phone number is on the website as well. If people want to contact me directly to find out more about how to get involved. And, um, you know, what's so wonderful again about this virtual space is many sisters who are working, who weren't able to come to the in-person meetups 
are able to see the recordings of our virtual meetups and they're able to post questions if they if they have them because you know many people are back to work soon after their babies are born and they have you know they have questions and we want to make sure that we that we address them but i hope that um in the near future we'll be able to meet up again in person there's nothing like being able to hug your sister and and hug and kiss babies, you know, that's that's my politician side coming out, right? Mm-hmm. Hugging and kissing babies and and touching one another and, and looking in each other's eyes and talking to each other. We miss that that human touch. But for now, we're we're grateful for the virtual space. Yeah, and thank you so much for coming on. It's like again, like to the top of the hour. A lot of times we hear these statistics and there's a lot of fear. Um, and, and, and a lot of pressure that that comes with like being pregnant during global pandemic, but also in this region. But knowing that there are people like you um, and Healthy Star and Demia who are really out here supporting uh, people who, uh, who are pregnant, uh, Black pregnant families is like very important. So thank you so much for coming on and please come back anytime. Thank you. When I first saw your name, I just thought, how awesome is that? You know, I mean, what what an absolutely beautiful name and a beautiful sister. So thank you all for for being here and, and for showcasing the positives, right? Maternal mortality makes us all very sad and we have to do better. But there are those of us that are out here doing the work, trying to make it better for our Black family. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it. And that was Ngazi Walker Tibbs from the Pittsburgh Black Breastfeeding Circle, and uh, with some, you know, very uh, powerful uh, information about a, a very, very important issue. And you know, as always, uh, you know, we're always um, able to really find that intersection, that connection um, to civic engagement, to public policy. And, you know, um, you know, say all politics is local and in many ways, everything is political as much as people hate to admit it and want to say, I don't want to get political. You know, everything's political um, and we can see the political implications of how it can impact things like maternal mentality, you know, um, and, 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 and also um, equity in the workplace uh, of women being able to you know, uh, practice breastfeeding, you know, in a comfortable, safe, um, and dignified, you know, situation. So, um, you know, again, just another, another great episode, you know, two wonderful guests, uh, doing, uh, exemplary work, um, here in the Pittsburgh area and providing a platform to share important information with people that literally, you know, impacts the lives of people. Um, yeah, you know, Bell Hook said the personal is political, but you know how Angozi was talking about uh, people not knowing how to help black moms breastfeed uh, because of like colorism and different issues. You know, that's one of the reasons why there is a lot of disconnect, you know, because for, for a lot of years, doulas and midwifery was actually illegal because you had to have like a medical certification, you had a doctorate, be a RN. And so we, we did necessarily lose a lot of uh, women and babies because of that ignorance. And so to see this new wave come back of, you know, um, uh, community births, home births, uh, family births is very important. And so I'm, I'm really glad that the doula movement has a home in Pittsburgh. 
Awesome. Absolutely. Um, and I think it was really great that you was able to cover, you know, like a lot of those uh, really prominent misconceptions too. Um, you know, for, for the reasons you mentioned, Miracle, um, as far as, you know, things like duels being prohibited for a while and, and losing a lot of that generational knowledge. Um, you know, and then also, um, you know, maybe maybe things have gotten better in the last couple of years since I've been in school. But, you know, in, in all the times that we took health class, I don't really remember them ever covering anything about that in the public school system. Um, so, you know, there's just a lot of different a lot of different ways that, you know, that knowledge has, has been lost to, uh, to some extent, you know, for a lot of different people. So, um, you know, covering those misconceptions, especially, you know, as it pertains to COVID, um, you know, is especially important right now. So I really appreciated that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Miracle, I think it's about that time for you to run down the, the it week is. But, you know, happy Women's History Month. We yeah. have a very bare bones week <laughs> um, this week. Uh, so, tomorrow, you know, there's a lot of conversation on Twitter. Is it better to have 800, you know, 20 million or $800 credit score? Um, so we're going to be talking about credit tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow at what Black Pittsburgh needs to know for Tuesday at two o'clock. We're talking about credit, how to rebuild your credit, how to invest wisely, how to make sound decisions, and what programs are out there to help you with home ownership um, and, and purchasing um, land and cars. So we're talking about credit on a Tuesday at two o'clock. Wednesday at six p.m. is this week in white supremacy. Unfortunately, you know, supremacy never sleeps, so we will be back every Wednesday at 6 o'clock. But Thursday, this Thursday, we have a very special edition of Until um, Julius Boatwright will be talking about, you know, maintaining your mental health during a uh, COVID-19 pandemic and what it really means uh, to put your mental health first. And so that's what we have um, up all the programming this week. I will say we were supposed to have an additional guest from Mississippi um, who, is, you know, who wanted to talk about their experiences being pregnant under a water boil advisory. And they're going to try to reschedule with us for later in the week to have that conversation. But we did want us to point out that people in Texas, people in Mississippi, um, people who are pregnant are still going through a lot of trauma and crises because of a lack of, of of support and resources due to the pandemic and on top of the, this winter weather. So please keep, you know, keep people in your prayers, uh, stay involved with community initiatives and mutual aid, because that's how we are going uh, to get together and, and just have like healthy parents and babies and families. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this was a really, uh, really, really cool episode. Like a lot of just really, you know, important information, um, you know, in, in, in a, you know, situation that, you know, one way or another, either as a family member or as a parent, you know, we know, you know, someone, um, you know, is going to go through this process, uh, you know, and we, you know, been, you know, reading a lot, learning a lot. Actually, our, our, like I said, our friend, Dr. Amos Adalja, who was on the show about a month ago, was on um, NBC with Casey Hunt, uh, you know, this afternoon talking about uh, one of the groups that's going to be targeted with the Johnson Johnson vaccine um, is pregnant mothers, because we know that, you know, pregnant mothers are at higher risk uh, to COVID complications, um, you know, so very, very timely. 
you know, discussion, you know, as, as we hope to be, you know, reach a, a point where we really, really can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, as more vaccinations come out, hopefully the variants, um, you know, don't have, you know, a devastating impact, you know, on the process of trying to slowly, 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 you know, turn the tide over the next few months as, as we, as we get outside, as the weather warms, as, 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 as the, the UV rays of the sun, you know, do what they do. Um, and, you know, we can hopefully march our way to herd immunity. Yeah. And I will say, we're talking about political, you know, the CPAC was last weekend. There oh, yeah. was a lot of people who refused to wear a mask. And so if you have people who went to CPAC, uh, please make sure they get tested. Please make sure they quarantine. You know, this isn't a, a, a making politics of, of, of the virus, but there are a lot of people who refused to wear masks and there were thousands of people going back and forth. And so we know uh, COVID-19 is spreading. There still is the variants out there and we're not trying to get worse. It is getting warmer for a lot of places. A lot of people were out, you know, unmasked. So the next two weeks, we're going to see what the numbers are going to look like. And we're going to hope that it's not going to overwhelm our systems, but please encourage the people in your, in your lives to wear masks, um, to try to use precautions and not go outside unnecessarily, um, especially if they're not vaccinated because we don't want this to spread. And the new variant, I think it was like 10 times um, uh, e more easily spread. So please just be careful. Right. Yeah. And one th interesting thing about um, the CPAC, there was a, a report that came out today, I believe that um, that the, the, the staff and the, and the, you know, um, administration of the hotel that hosted it um, definitely put out a statement saying that the staff was definitely, definitely not uh, jazzed about how they were treated by the guests of the CPAC conference. Um, you know, and it was the, uh, I believe it was at the CPAC conference, this famous video that went around the last couple of days where I think it was a representative of the hotel had to come on stage and tell people like you like you know you gotta wear a mask like it's a you know a rule of the hotel like inside the hotel and got and I think she got booed off the stage, um, you know so um, yeah so the staff was not was was not happy I think that's another kind of you know byproduct as you know people kind of want to you know mimic you know the behavior you know of the past president you know, uh, in real time in their day-to-day -day interactions with people. And I think, you know, they're learning that that's not a winning, it might be a winning strategy for a reality TV guy, but in real time every day, if you go around like that, you know I mean? You're probably eventually, you know, going to end up like the twisted iced tea guy in the convenience store one way or another, figuratively or literally, <laughs> but it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a winning way to go. I don't think. And I will say not to spread conspiracies on March 4th is this weekend, uh, this week. So please, you know, stay safe. You know, people say Trump is going to take, you know, the presidency back on March 4th. We're not, it may be another January 6th. So if you're in DC, just please just stay safe. Might like, it's a lot, you know, that this election 2020 is never ending. Um, but hopefully in the coming weeks, everything will be put to rest and we can move on to election 2021. But for those of you in D.C. area, you know, um, the State of the Union is supposed to be coming up this week. 
So just please, you know, stay safe, stay mindful, and stay protected. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brian, do you have one final thing before we close until next week? Um, I, I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm sorry I missed, you know, the first half of this episode. You know, everything everything we talked about with that second guest was super interesting. Um, you know, it's an issue that I'm not, um, you know, as familiar with. Um, and, you know, something that hasn't really been spotlighted until, um, you know, the last couple of years, really, with uh, that, that report about specifically Pittsburgh, um, with all the racial disparities in, in terms of, um, you know, maternal health in general, um, and some of those more high-profile cases, um, you know, like when, when Serena Williams had, had issues with that um, and, and was able to, you know, really spotlight that for a moment. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm just happy we were able to, to do that this episode, and, and sorry I, I missed out on part of it. Oh, no problem. We're just glad you got back safe. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Long, long, long drive. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, that, that closes us out for um, another episode of the One Hood Power Hour. Thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us. Um, special, special, special thanks to our guests, uh, Demia Horsley from Healthy Start Pittsburgh and Angazi Walker-Tibbs from the Pittsburgh Black Breastfeeding Circle. Uh, on behalf of my co-hosts, Ryan White and Miracle Jones, I am Kahari Mosley. And for One Hood Power, thank you for joining us and stay safe, stay engaged, stay involved and tune in next Monday at 7 p.m. as we have part two of our primary uh, election status check. Um, so uh, that, that's going to be another great discussion. So until then, take care and we'll see you next Monday at 7. Good night.